Well, good morning, Calvary Church, and those of us who are joining us online. Uh, today, we're going to actually be finishing our time, our study in 1 Thessalonians, so you can turn to the end of the book. But we're going to talk really about what a gospel-centered church is like. You know, we throw around that phrase a lot these days, gospel-centeredness. What does it mean? It, it not only means that we believe the gospel, it not only means that we're a church that preaches the gospel, but it also means that we're a church that actually lives out the gospel in our personal relationships with one another, that it's evident that we've been transformed by the gospel of grace, and that we extend that grace to others. So I want you to think about your experience in different churches you've been a part of. I know some of you, maybe this is the only church you've ever known in your entire Christian life, and that's wonderful too. But many of us in our society have been involved in a lot of different churches, and hopefully they've been really fulfilling to you and been a great blessing from God in your life. That's generally the case, and that's why we enjoy getting together to worship together and to minister together as God's people. It's so important, and the fellowship of believers is such a wonderful blessing in our lives. And I hope that you feel this way about Calvary Church as well, and that uh, you invest your life uh, in this church while you're here and in other people. And uh, by the way, this is a wonderful place for a shameless plug for our membership class that's coming up. So, uh, so March 18th, if, you know, if you'd like to learn more about what Calvary Church is about and what it might mean to join yourself more intimately with us as a body of believers, please come to that class that evening. But you know, unfortunately, church experience is not always like this. We also know that we're still in the flesh, and so are others, and relational problems still exist and are part of our life, and situations arise that can be very uncomfortable in churches at times. You know, hopefully, though, you're not one of those people that's a regular instigator of problems, because we'll have to have a meeting, okay? So, but these problems do occur. Hopefully, you're not one of those, but hopefully, you're the kind of person that solves problems, and... And when tensions arise, you know how to apply the gospel in those relationships. You know, hopefully you consider yourself one of those types of people. You know, in your church, in this church, we need people who resolve problems based upon the gospel. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all of us could be that way all of the time? It would make our fellowship so much more sweet. But we constantly need to be asking, how can we make the church function better for us, for the whole community of faith, wouldn't it be truly awesome if our relationships could excel still more in the power of the gospel? That's what we've been learning in 1 Thessalonians. So please turn to the end of the book in chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 28, and we can be, as I'll read it to you this morning, and you can be praying for greater spiritual health in our relationships with one another as you hear these words. So we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. 
Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So our Apostle Paul here is teaching us how we're supposed to live in this new community that we've become a part of, especially that young, new, fresh church start in Thessalonica. What does it mean to live together in a new community, in a church, this church, the larger church, any church out there, but specifically your church where God has placed you? So what we're going to learn this morning is that peace and goodness and holiness are what's supposed to characterize the relational life of every church. Peace, goodness, and holiness should characterize the relational life of every church. And to achieve this kind of characterization, we must give attention to three areas. And the first area is, in verses 12 to 15, our relational obligations to one another. Second of all, the second area in verses 16 to 22 has to do with our spiritual proprieties and personal and congregational worship. And the third area to give attention to is our prayers for God's grace and His sanctifying purposes. And so this will become even more clear as we go through. Remember this, this letter was prompted by a field report. You know, most of these letters in the New Testament are really just missionary correspondence. Um, and this, this is prompted because Timothy had come back to the Apostle Paul and given a report about the young church, and the church was doing really well. They were excelling, but they could still excel still more. And so Timothy, as we noted in chapter 3, verse 6, he gives his report to the Apostle uh, Paul, and we've already covered some issues in this letter that this new church needed to learn. We've considered uh, issues of sexual morality, issues of brotherly love and working, issues of the end times and expectations for Jesus' return. Well, in our passage today, we're looking at some other issues. Uh, for example, we'll be looking at issues about leadership and followership, how to deal with difficult people, spiritual habits and attitudes towards spiritual gifts and so many more things. Now, it's important to note that in this particular passage, as you probably already noted as I've read it, there are opportunities here to address a lot, or at least a number, of controversial topics from this passage. But we're only going to touch briefly on those kinds of things, just to let you know up front, and we're going to leave a fuller explanation to any of those topics when we cover passages later on together that are more direct and full and clear in what they speak to. I want us to be focused this morning on learning the main lessons from our passage this morning, the way God has given us His Scripture, so that we will have peace and goodness and holiness abounding even more in the life of Calvary Church. So let's take a look at this first area, our relational obligations toward one another, in verses 12 to 15. So it breaks down into two sections. We see right away in verses 12 to 13, he's talking very specifically about how the elders and the congregation should behave toward one another. And then in verses 14 and 15, some instructions about everybody's responsibility in the church. So we'll take a look first at these first two verses. Again, he says, I'll read it to you. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And so we see this request that comes immediately from the apostle to this, 
This church, it's, it's gentle on the one hand. Notice he calls them brothers again. I mean, it occurs five times in this section, he says brothers. Verse 12, verse 13, 25, 26, 27. And overall, in the whole book, 18 times he refers to them with such affection. So he really, truly does love them. Yet the apostle, as you've already noticed, is also very clear and firm on the things that need to be firm because he desires that the church grow as a whole and that every individual grow as well. So the members of the Thessalonian church were to respect their leaders, in other words, to recognize them for who they are as the Lord's gift to his church. Now, we're not going to be getting into church government or polity issues today, but thinking about this this church in the original context, these leaders were probably most likely the elders that were appointed by the apostle or maybe even by Timothy when he went up there. We don't know yet if this church had what we sort of call a pastor at this point or not. Uh, They're only a few months old in the Lord, but they already have been given leaders to lead them. Perhaps, you know, we know some names of some of the the leaders at the church, Jason, uh, and then Aristarchus and Secundus, they would be traveling companions and on mission with Paul often, and maybe others. And that's about all we know. But these leaders, these elders, these pastors, they're described in three ways. First of all, as those who diligently labor. I mean, true pastoral work is, is hard, it's difficult, it's exhausting. Elsewhere, the apostle will talk about it in terms of toil or labor or struggle. You know, it involves, of course, studying and preparing and speaking and counseling and visitation and leadership and administration. And the list goes on and on and on. Yet God supplies everything that his leaders need to lead his church. In Colossians 1.29, for example, the Apostle Paul writes, For this purpose I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. And that's what these leaders were doing for the Thessalonian church. And it's really important, as I've observed in the American church, especially, and I'm sure it's true around the world, we need to be careful not to pile unrealistic expectations upon our spiritual leaders, whether they be lay elders or pastors but to be realistic in our expectations because they are working hard and diligently laboring on your behalf. Second of all, they're described as those who have charge over you in the Lord. And so there is authority in the Lord's church. You know, it's not just simply a bunch of individuals who get together so that they can do a bunch of individual things and whatever they want to do. But there's authority in the church and each church's leadership comes from the Lord Himself. And it's not contrary at all in any way to Jesus and his teaching about being servant leaders. It's really just an expression of it. For example, in 2 Corinthians 10.8, the apostle writes, For even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for the building, building you up and not for destroying you. That's what God's authority is for. And part of respecting God is respecting the leaders that he gives us. The third way they're described as, as those who give you instruction, some translations say, or as those who admonish you, or those who give you strong counsel. He's talking about warnings for doctrinal error or life errors, because it's on the hearts of leaders to care for people. Again, back in Colossians 1.28, the Apostle Paul writes, and we proclaim him, speaking of Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So you want to listen when spiritual leaders give you advice about doctrine or life. 
their goal and their purpose is to provide moral guidance and spiritual influence and ethical instruction as they teach the fullness of the gospel. But even further, the congregation, he says, they're supposed to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Notice it's not just simply, hey, obey your leaders. Hey, respect your leaders. But he's talking about love them. And if you really value the work of the Lord and the work of the Lord through his leaders, well, then you will love them. And it comes down to that. They're God's blessing to you. In 1 Timothy 5.17, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered a double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and 17, it says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the results of their conduct and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. You know, perhaps in Thessalonica, the issue, something like this, maybe, you know, these new leaders in the church, maybe some of them were being overbearing. I mean, they're young in the faith. They're inexperienced in leading a church. And maybe, maybe the followers had a lot to learn, too, about accepting God's will and submitting to leadership through them. I mean, everybody in this situation is brand new to Christianity. I mean, the only thing that they knew before that was their life apart from Christ and the different organizations that they were a part of, but they weren't the church. And they're just trying to figure out how this works, this new family that God has formed. So whatever the Apostle Paul says, you need to live in peace. And peace comes when there's godly leadership and there's godly followership. One more passage from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5, he writes, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those lauded to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So those are some basic instructions to this new church trying to figure out church about how they're supposed to relate to one another as leaders and followers. Well, then comes this passage in verses 14 to 15 about everybody's responsibility. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle or the unruly, depending on your translation, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So the Apostle Paul here is talking about difficult people, <clears throat> and notice that difficult people are everyone's responsibility not just the leaders. So, you know, you don't want to go around the church, hey, pastor, did you hear about so-and-so? They could really need, use some help. It's like, hey, congregant, maybe you should help them, you know. So, I mean, this is for everyone in the church is supposed to be involved in the life of everybody in the church. And, you know, difficult people are hard to relate to sometimes. And so, there's the admonish the unruly or the idle, encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. You could also look at them, I would, I would use these terms to help us maybe understand, is the scary. 
because you're not just talking about people who are just sort of sitting around doing nothing. It, it relates to what was earlier in the letter, and they're living an undisciplined life. And they're involved in the worldliness the way they shouldn't be involved. And so they can sort of be scary to be around, and people tend to avoid those types of people. The second group, I would call them the draining. They're just always in, in need of encouragement. And that's great. We should encourage them. And the third group are the people who have needs. Uh, help the weak. So the first group, admonish the unruly. Uh, so you're supposed to warn the undisciplined. Those that are living a wild, <clears throat> worldly life, disorderly, not obeying the instructions earlier in this letter about what is brotherly love in the church look like in chapter 4, admonish them. And uh, we can all do that. We don't have to just leave it to the leaders to deal with those kinds of people. Second group, it can be really easy to ignore the draining because they take energy from us, but we're supposed to be sacrificing ourselves for one another, and we're all going to be in that position at some point in our lives anyway, where we are faint-hearted, and we're wondering about whether or not this faith in Jesus Christ is really worth it. You know, so we're just be strengthening the discouraged, the depressed, people that are often given to giving up, is what he's talking about. People who worry a lot or maybe are timid in their faith. Those who maybe you think about this letter and earlier in chapter 4, he could be referring very specifically to people who have recently just lost their loved ones who have put their faith in Christ. So don't ignore uh, these people or hope that somebody else will deal with it, but you can be an encouragement. Later on we'll talk about that, but you can be an encouragement to these people. And then finally, help the weak. You know, you don't just need to tell other people about, hey, so-and-so could use some help. Well, I mean, you could help the person, you know? I mean, you really can be helpful. And helping the weak here is, is, is holding on to them and staying loyal to them, putting your arms around them when they need it, you know? Perhaps he's talking here about those that are the lowly of society. I mean, he doesn't define it here too tightly. Maybe he's talking about earlier in the letter, people that are given to temptations, and to the persecutions that are going on, and, and maybe that's what he's talking about in their weakness. It doesn't matter why you're weak. But when we're weak, we need someone strong to come beside us. So when we find people that are weak, let's give them strength. And so then he urges them to, us to be patient with all those above. We have to be patient. That means not being irritated or annoyed at slow progress, especially if people are constantly in one of these categories. Of course, as long as progress is being made, there's hope, as long as we're going in the right direction. But all churches have these difficult people in them and other types that Scripture talks about elsewhere. So will you be helpful and not leave it to other people and not push it off on your leaders? I mean, sometimes we just need to realize that we really can help other people. You don't need to be an expert in anything. In Romans chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says, And concerning you, my brothers, I myself am also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. You have the gospel. You know the gospel. You're living it out. You have everything you need with the Holy Spirit indwelling you because of your faith in Christ. You can be a wonderful encouragement to someone else. So a further general instruction to the whole congregation is to make sure that no one takes retribution. That's a natural 
sinful urge to repay other people. When they do bad things to you, you do bad things to them. You know, it's the way our world operates all the time, a self-righteous world, that world that we got saved out of. And this can be a problem in any church. It can get very nasty. And when people want to get back at each other and they can use whatever's at their disposal, their positions in the church maybe, or their relationships, or their money, or whatever it might be to get back at one another, that's the way of the world. But we are to be seeking to do what's good for one another, and even when we're wronged, we're to love. That's a sign of spiritual maturity, is to not repay somebody for what they've done to you. So we're to think about responding to the evil in our lives, or even if it comes from, believe it or not, it can come from one another in this room at times. But we want to think about not only what is the good response, but what is the best response for that other person to be able to make progress in the gospel and in maturity themselves. To think beyond just the immediate situation, but how can we truly help people to think and to live their lives gospel-centered? And so that first, whole first area that the Apostle's talking about is our relational obligations toward one another. There's a lot in this section. And each church is to be a community filled with godly leaders and godly followers. We also learn that each church is to be a community that provides honest, helpful encouragement to one another and living out mutual forgiveness. Mutual forgiveness. The Apostle Paul talks about this repeatedly in so many of his other letters. That's applying the gospel to our relationships. We don't hold grudges as Christians. We forgive. And so peace and goodness and holiness should characterize the relational life of a church. It appears to me, and I've only been here four months, but it appears to me that Calvary Evangelical Free Church is doing very well in this whole area. So then, of course, we'll just quote the Apostle Paul when he says, excel, excel still more, people. That's God's word to us, to excel still more. So the second area to look at are our spiritual proprieties in personal and congregational worship, verses 16 to 22. And so at the beginning in verses 16 to 18, he's talking about our, the characterization of our life before God. How do we live before Him? Because our life is an act of worship. And then in verses 19 to 22, he covers our attitudes toward the gifts that God has given to His church and to others in His church. So let's start with uh, verses 16 to 18. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So there are three broad commands, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. You know, to rejoice always, that's actually unique to Christianity among all the other human-created religions rather than divinely given by the Lord Himself. And so the depth of our joy is so deep that even in our sorrow we're joyful. He brought that up earlier in the letter. And we should really be, as Christians, the happiest people in the room all the time because of where our joy actually comes from. It doesn't come from circumstances in our life. It comes from the fact that we know that God loves us in Jesus Christ and He has redeemed us. As it says in Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Prayer is one of the most common activities of Christians. We do it all the time. We're persistent in it. Uh, our regular times of prayer eventually will give way in our lives as well to just a growing spontaneity of wanting to pray. But you can take advantage. There are so many opportunities to pray, especially in this church. You know, we, have, we even have Wednesday evening prayer meetings 
and your small groups that you're a part of. There's so many ways and places to pray. And then we're supposed to be giving thanks in everything. Whatever happens, we know that our Lord God is sovereign over the circumstances of our lives and over His world that He rules. And as in Romans 8, 28, we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. And so, we can be a very thankful people. Now, I hope you notice that these three things are the exact opposite of the way our world lives. Right? The pressure there is constantly to be upset about something. You ever notice that? The world wants you to be upset all the time. God wants you to be joyful all the time. The world wants you to be relying upon yourself to solve problems, to move ahead. But the Scriptures want us to pray without ceasing because God is the one who possesses all power. The world teaches us to be entitled. Have you noticed that? The attitudes out there, it doesn't matter your circumstance in life. Everybody thinks they deserve something. And everybody thinks that somebody else is the problem. Well, as Christians, we're supposed to give thanks in every circumstance. You see, we're very different, and this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He says that, all three of these commands. That's part of His gift to us, is that we can be joyful, prayerful, and thankful all the time. We can be, and we are, because of God's work in our life and the presence of the Holy Spirit in us as believers. And it's central to His plan for our life. If you want more blessing in your life, be more joyful. Practice these things. Be more thankful. Be more prayerful. And we're told to do this. Of course, it doesn't mean that we train ourselves to feel the wrong things for certain events. We don't do that, being weird. No, we do experience sadness, but even then there remains this Christian joy that somehow always seems to shine through. Yes, we do do other activities than pray. It's not that we just sit around praying all day, but we pray often. We pray regularly, and and we have this attitude about things that we pray for them. And we do live through undesirable circumstances, but we trust in God's goodness toward us anyway. And so we need to, so many times, just pray and counsel our own souls with the gospel. You see this come out in a lot of David's psalms even, and how he applies it to himself. But we need to rejoice in Christ. We need to depend upon God in prayer, and we need to give thanks for His for his goodness to us. You know, if we direct our minds, we'll find that we can actually control our emotions. And that this is all the work of God in us through his spirit because we're doing the things he asked us to do. Be joyful, be prayerful, be thankful. And then he goes on in verses 19 to 22 to talk about our attitude toward God's gifts to his church he says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So these Thessalonians were commanded not to quench the spirit, which means don't put out the light or don't extinguish the flame, because the spirit of God leads his church and empowers his church. Now, it seems that what's going on in Thessalonica at the, at the moment, probably in that report Timothy gave, is that they were treating um, God's leading uh, through his prophets at this church with contempt. And so these prophets were likely speaking in either general gatherings or smaller gatherings at the church. Maybe they were out of 
control. Perhaps people were getting very skeptical and even embarrassed because they were out of hand and would just simply reject all prophecies in that way. Maybe they were too emotional, uh, tying it to the return of Christ, as you see back in chapter 2. And perhaps that was it. And it's like people with the, you know, the signs, the end is near all the time, you know, it's coming to the meetings. But this would be the opposite problem, you see, than what was going on in the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth, they were over-enamored with the gift. The church at Thessalonica was under-enamored. And the Apostle Paul probably already gave them a lot of instruction, which we don't have access to, and how to respond, and so he, and he's responding to this issue as it comes up. So this might be a good place to give a little helpful review and over, overview of the common categorization um, of prophets, so that you can be a little bit clear on some things. So the Old Testament prophets, to put it simply, were superseded by the New Testament apostles. That's the relationship. Old Testament prophets to New Testament apostles, they're the Scripture writers. They're the only ones who can go around and say, thus saith the Lord. No one else can. And so these New Testament prophets are somehow associated with the New Testament apostles as foundational to the church. You think of some of the examples of the prophets that we read about in the New Testament. God would often reveal messages to them for His church. You think of Agabus and how he predicted the famine, as well as talking about what would take place with Paul. In the Council of Jerusalem, there were a couple prophets, Judas and Silas, that were sent off to Antioch and would travel with the Apostle Paul. You think about the story in the book of Acts of Philip's four daughters, and there are other examples too. So there's not agreement in the church whether this gift of prophecy exists today uh, in the same manner or in the same measure. And again, that's an issue left to another passage at another time. But certainly with the Scriptures complete and the apostles gone, we are in a much different situation than the first century church. So if it continues in some form, then plausibly some would see prophecy really as insight into the Word of God, insight into the world maybe, insight into our lives that is a unique level of insight. Others would see it as some type of a spontaneous revelation given to people, but of course it's only retold in human words. No way is equatable to Scripture or anything. It's completely uh, has a fallible quality to it. But of course, then you can go beyond what might be like normal people, and there are all those abnormal people out there who make much larger claims about prophecy, and notice how it always has to do with themselves and self-promotion. Well, most likely, those people are false prophets, and they're often very destructive people and divisive to the church. So, there is agreement that God the Spirit directs and guides the church that He indwells, and He does this primarily through His Word that's already given to the church, to His various leaders and teachers, and even in our own souls, hearts, and minds. Prophecy is similar to teaching in the New Testament, in other words, that its goal is encouragement and to edify the church. So the proper attitude here is not to immediately accept or reject some human formulation of some impression from the Lord. I mean, all gifts have their limits, and they're all subject and can be subject to human sinful desires. People do that all the time. The proper attitude is to examine for truth. Is it aligned with Scripture or not? 
to examine whether or not it glorifies Jesus Christ. Because if it doesn't glorify Jesus Christ, then you can dismiss it. Also to look at the character of the person making any kind of a claim. Because that will reveal what you should do. And ultimately, is it edifying to the church or divisive? And then you need to be able to hold on, the apostle saying, to that which is good and genuine and reject that what's evil and false and misguided. Again, it might be an exhortation from Scripture or an impression on an issue, a word of direction or some kind of information that might be unknown. But the second area is about spiritual proprieties. In other words, what is it we should be giving our lives to? How do we conduct ourselves in personal worship and congregational worship? And what we learn here is that there are certain characteristics and constants that we want more and more part of our life. That's joy, prayer, and thanksgiving. Also, we need to accept the gifts that the Spirit has given to His church and yet always evaluate their use, whatever the gift is, not just the ones He's talking about here. And to evaluate how it aligns with Scripture and how it glorifies Jesus Christ. In fact, you can even look around the room today and think about each individual person and the variety of the gifts that God has given to Calvary Evangelical Free Church. What do you think God's going to do with us? with all these gifts sitting here. It's amazing to think about what could be. I hope more and more people will get involved. I hope that you'll think about where you can serve. That's the second area. The third area to give attention to if we want to be this church that's being talked about is our prayers for God's grace in sanctifying His sanctifying purposes in verses 23 to 28. These are the final verses, the conclusion of the letter contain prayers and requests and blessing. And even here, there's some final instructions and there's instruction by example even that we find. And so in verses 23 and 24, there's a prayer. Then there's some final instructions in verses 25 to 27. And finally, the benediction in verse 28. And so we read, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. So the God of peace, you know, when you read this phrase, it can refer to two different things. It could refer to the fact that God himself is the peaceful one. Did you know that that's true? You know, God isn't agitated, right? He's totally at peace with what he's doing in the world. And he's the giver of peace. And so he's also the God who gives peace, and he gives it to us through the gospel and then internally through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. He's the God of peace. And he's petitioned for this thorough sanctification, the Apostle Paul saying. I don't want you to leave anything out. Thoroughly transform those Thessalonians. Preserve them in blamelessness. He's talking about moral completeness. Elsewhere, the Apostle will talk about perfection or becoming sanctified, growing in holiness in each and every part of their being so that when Jesus comes, they're ready. That's the goal. When Jesus comes back, We will be perfected at that time, but in the meantime, to be preserved blameless. So notice the confidence that the apostle has in God. He's planned it, he's called, therefore he's going to complete it. It says right here that he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. So he's actually asking God to do these things, not the people to try to sort of work it up in themselves to somehow make themselves blameless. 
I mean, certainly we have a role to play, but you see the confidence here? This changes our whole perspective when we realize that even our sanctification, that's a work of God's grace in our life. And we can rest secure at peace that God is going to accomplish these things in our life. And then we read, for example, in Hebrews 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's predestined for those whom he's called, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, those he also called, and whom he called, those he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Our salvation is secure, our sanctification is secure, our glorification is secure. It's all secure in Christ. And so then the final instructions come in verses 25 and 7. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers of the holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Brothers, brothers, brothers. Three times. So we should pray like verses 23 and 24 for everybody. And you just look back to what that is. And the apostle's asking them them to pray for him. And he says they're to greet everyone, probably on his behalf, but maybe just make sure you don't leave anybody out. Don't avoid anyone. Maybe this is a clue to some additional relational tension or additional clue to relational tension at this church. I mean, it's a simple application here. You know, do you do this? Do you avoid people on a Sunday morning? Or do you greet everyone? Again, another issue, not to spend much time on here, uh, is the holy kiss because we don't know anything about it, really. It's a physical expression of, of a greeting that was used in the culture. You know, our culture doesn't typically kiss each other on the cheek type of thing. So, but when you go to those cultures, you better do it, and, um, and you will be blessed because you did. But he's talking about how he transforms even the most basic greetings in life to be Christian. I mean, church relationships are unlike any other relationships you have. It's not like just, you know, a sports club you belong to or a garden club you belong to or something like that. It's even closer than our own families. They're holy relationships. And they're very, very close. And our relationships are unique in that way by the Holy Spirit. And Paul always, in his letters, infuses this new meaning into what are standard greetings and expect us to do accordingly. You know, our culture is just talking about holy hugs and handshakes. So they're to read this letter notice publicly to all the church, and he puts them under oath. This is a fascinating little statement here. So remember what all is going on back there. You know, you have all those opponents with their smear campaigns. You have persecution going on. You have um, just Paul not having, being able to be there very long. And you've got natural sinfulness. You've got so much stuff going on. And he puts them under oath, perhaps fearing uh, some tensions and the opponents and how they might use his words. If everyone doesn't know exactly what he wrote, the Scriptures belong to the church as a whole, to every one of us. And so they would all need to know exactly what the apostle wrote. This is not like a prophecy that he mentioned earlier that somehow, oh, let's just examine what Paul said and we'll make a decision on it. This is Holy Scripture that he wrote that he even was conscious of when he was writing it as the Holy Spirit carried him along. This is the Word of God. So they would probably read it on more than one occasion, and they probably, like many of the churches at this time in the world, they're going to be making their own collection of Scriptures. 
And you know they're going to copy them, and they're going to share them. And you know that's why we have this today. It's because of the faithfulness of the churches recognizing God's holy word and preserving it. God superintending all along the way. And finally, we get to the benediction, verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's a normal ending of a letter for a Christian letter. Usually in the, in the time, a letter would end with, you know, sort of wishing people health and strength and prosperity. Nothing wrong with that. But grace is the heart of the gospel. That's how he opened the letter in chapter 1, verse 1. And so that's how he closes the letter with grace as well. Because our Lord Jesus is the source, the fountainhead of all grace in our life. And it's our prayer that he would continue to pour out his grace to accomplish the things that need to be done in all three of these areas that we just looked at this morning. And that by his grace and his grace alone, he'll produce them. And we should be praying for these things in our life and one another's life, that God would, by his powerful grace, sanctify his people. We're to pray for holiness, while at the same time we can trust him for his faithfulness. We're to express what we're praying in our current relationships, you know, to act as we pray and to apply the gospel. And we're to anticipate progress. We should anticipate that as we pray for ourselves, that God's going to cause us to grow. That as we pray for other people, that we should expect to see God do things in their lives and cause them to move forward by His power. You see, today, this last section, all we're talking about, these are just responsibilities of life as a Christian in a Christian community, in a local church. So I want us to review 1 Thessalonians really briefly. You have the book in front of you. So we finished seven weeks in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and I want to remind us of some of the lessons that we have learned. We actually began back in Acts 17. We started talking about how in Acts 17, when the gospel first came to the city of Thessalonica, that the gospel of Jesus Christ turned the world upside down or rather right side up, as it's written. We've learned in this book that we are to, from the very beginning in chapter 1, that we're to rejoice before God, glorifying Him for His work with the gospel, and thanking Him yet again for the privilege of being a part of its global advancement. That's what we learned in chapter 1. I mean, what a wonderful opportunity to be able to be a part of that. In chapter 2, we learn that we're supposed to be ones who proclaim the gospel boldly, but also live the gospel genuinely. We learn that the gospel of God creates believers, and it continues to transform them for eternal glory, and that's what chapter 2 is about. We also learn that we're to love the church so much that we're wrapped up in its progress. That's what we learned in chapter 3. Chapter 4, we learned that we're to keep advancing in our walk, Keep submitting to Jesus Christ and ever increasing in our sanctification by the Holy Spirit's power. That's chapter 4. We also learn in chapter 4 and part of 5 that we're to encourage one another with the true doctrines of the return of Jesus Christ. We talked about this last, way, last, last week. In such a way that it actually increases our knowledge, our faith, our love and hope, and our joy. And today that we learn that peace, goodness, holiness, that's what's supposed to characterize us as a church. The gospel is to be the center of our life and the center of our life together. You know, we're not going to go on and study 2 Thessalonians. I have other things planned. But you can read 2 Thessalonians on your own. 
you have it in front of you. Most likely, this 2 Thessalonians was written just six months after 1 Thessalonians was written. And the situation has gotten a whole lot worse really fast as you read that letter. Persecution continues to grow for this young church. And they're going to need greater encouragement and greater instruction, and that's what you find there. But we're going to move on here as a church. Next week, we're going to be looking at Psalm 8. And then, of course, many scriptures that are going to be related to the Easter season that is upon us. So let me pray for us, and we'll continue with our worship this morning. Lord God, we thank you so much for your grace that you've given to us and your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for us this morning that each one of us, by your grace, would pursue and achieve the thoroughgoing sanctification of the Spirit we read about here this morning. I pray that as a church, Calvary Church, by God's grace, would become a church where the gospel thrives with all of its blessings in our lives, and that peace and goodness and holiness would characterize us and our relationships with one another. We pray these things, Lord Jesus, so that you would be even further glorified in our midst as your people. Amen.